Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We're certainly happy to have you here today with us. Hey, this month we are celebrating a milestone. You all have downloaded over 11 million episodes of the Typology podcast, and we couldn't be more excited, more grateful, more thankful for all of you who listen, who share with your friends, share with the ones you love. We're super grateful for you all, and we want to say thank you, and we are celebrating by digging into the archives and playing some of the faves. Today, we have a great guest for you, a very popular leadership trainer. She is an international speaker, best-selling author. She is featured in conferences like If Catalysts Thrive and Propel. She also chairs the board of the International Discipleship Organization 3D Movements, and she is the co-host of the Lead Stories podcast, and we are talking about the brilliant, the fierce, and the funny Joe Saxon. This is a powerful interview and really entertaining as well. I'm sure you already know who Joe Saxon is, but if for some reason you have not heard her, you're going to love this interview. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner, and with no further ado... Here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Typology Tribe, this is Ian Cron, and I am so excited today because my friend Joe Saxton is on with us. Hey, welcome to the show, my friend. It's so good to see you again. You too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, it's been, a, I mean, almost... It's been a year and a half since yeah. uh, we had you on the Road Back to You podcast with my friend Suzanne Stabile. Mm-hmm. Um, can you catch me up on on what's going on? And in fact, maybe give a little bit of your backstory for folks who are new to typology and the Enneagram. You know, just give them a little thumbnail sketch of Joe Saxton. Okay, thumbnail sketch. I am a British Nigerian or a Nigerian Brit, actually is what I tend to go by, which means I my parents are Nigerian, but I grew up in London in England, um, moved here about 14 years ago, married to a, a fellow Brit, a guy called Chris, got two kids, two girls, an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old who are awesome. We have a dog, which I've tried to keep away from us for our conversation this time because he tried to get on the podcast last time. Uh, oh, that's <laughs> right. I remember that. You had one of the funniest lines I've ever heard in my life, which... <laughs> had something to do with the dog perishing. I it, just don't remember it, what it, it is. Yes, it was. It was about the end of his life. Well, the dog lives. The dog lives uh, <laughs> <laughs> for now, today. And, and um, like you said, I wear a lot of hats. Um, so speaking and writing in the part, I guess since we last spoke, I've written a book, um, which will be out and called The Dream of You. Let go of broken identities and live the life you made for. And um, mainly just trying to keep up with my kids, really, in their sports. That, that, those two things seem to be the sum parts of my life. Writing a book, chasing down my kids and being their chauffeur at any given moment. Yes, that's, that's uh, one of the great rewards of parenthood, isn't it? Ain't that the truth? Chauffeur. Wow. Living the dream, sir. That's yeah, what I am. Totally. I get it. So you're an Enneagram 8, right? I am, uh, yes. The wonderful challengers and uh in your experience like what does it mean let let me ask you this how would your parents have described you as a child (laughs) now um how would how would they well anyway ian they probably would still but um they would have described me as that i'd never stop i was always pushing 
Um, never kept my mouth shut. Always had an opinion. Always felt I was right. Insisted I was right. And then when I was right, would tell them so. Um, uh, disrespectful. Um, just too much. Just too much. Just too loud. Too everything. I was on the extreme end. I think most of the words would have been extremes that would have been used to describe my my presence, my presence and subsequent behavior. And anytime I open my mouth. Yep. Yes. All right. So I love what you just said too much uh, because I think that is the Enneagram eight, the challenger, yeah. right? The, their, mm -hmm. their passion, their deadly sin is lust. And I, I would describe lust as this need uh, to, uh, and well, one way of thinking about lust is the need for immediate engagement with life. Yes. Yes, that's a really strong definition. Right? There is a yeah, absolutely, because there's this intensity. Um, well, there's just the kind of grabbing it by the horns from the get-go, and why not do it from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep? So it's always being accused of you're too loud, you're too yes. strong, you're too yep. present, you're too overwhelming, yeah. you're too absolutely. You, you know, you eat too much, you exercise too much, you work yep. too much. See, yep. I, see, I know all this because I have uh, an eight mother and an eight daughter. That's a great sandwich. Yeah. I love that. They're both, I, re they're both redheads too. Fantastic. They kind of embody all the eightness, even in their very being. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I actually was describing my mother this weekend at a, at a speaking event. And my mother uh, is very reminiscent. She's 90 now. She reminds me of Catherine Hepburn. Oh, wow. You, you, yeah, you know when it's like that intensity and yeah. like right up in your grill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's always right up in your grill. And, and uh, But again, I adore her. So right, I want to I ask you uh, a little bit about your book because mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the title. And I want you to just give us a – here's a word we don't use often – a praises. Of, oh. of the book that earlier for those of you for those of you who were not uh, he, uh, able to hear we weren't recording it uh, Joe just in a most wonderful way dropped the word sartorial which I think should be reintroduced under to the English language uh, on a there regular basis so now praises can you just give me a summary of the book yeah yeah the book um, basically asked the question the dream of you asked the question who were you before anybody told you who you were supposed to be mm. And who were you before life told you what you were supposed to be? And it charts the story of, um, well, uh, hopefully our stories of losing and finding identity and purpose and the challenges you sometimes have to go through to, well, you, I would say sometimes maybe inevitably have to go through to find your way back. And um, my, I guess my basic foundation is, you know, you know I believe that God I, gave us a great identity and a purpose and then everything else happens. <laughs> That gets in the way of it. And um, it's how do we uncover that rather than just put a Band-Aid on and present some other alternative? How do we, to coin your phrase, find the road back? That's, huh. the, that, that's what the book's about. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of questions, because this is all going to come into the Enneagram. Okay. Tell me, yeah. tell me what you mean by the word identity. I, for me, when I think of the word identity, I think of the core of who you are, essentially. Mm -hmm. When you boil it down, what makes you you? And um, for me, it comes down to personality and 
why but I think I'd probably come down to how you how you feel hardwired I I find myself when talking about identity saying the word wired a lot this is how I'm wired um and so I when I ask someone about identity I ask what's your wiring mm. because because for me wiring is before it it's kind of the foundations it's underground and um it, it's just there okay so yeah all right so how do I uncover you know, what I'm hearing you say is that everybody is born with an essence, right? With uh, Yeah. And uh, that between cultural expectations, gender expectations, yep. uh, the, the identities that get thrust on us uh, that we feel like we need to embody in order to survive in the world and get our needs met, that underneath all of those narratives, there may be somebody else waiting for you that until you reclaim them, not even discover, but reclaim that that inner person, yeah, you know, you're just not going to live into your your God self, right? I mean, so is that? I mean, is that where? Yeah, it's going. I think so, and I, I mean, I do think that as we grow and develop and encounter things in life, I that our identities kind of flourish, and there are pieces that are added along the way. It's just hopefully that the pieces are the good bits, you know, <laughs> that rather than just the negative bits. I think, I, I mean, I would look back on my life and say there are certain things that have shaped my identity and changed my identity and added to, and enhanced the wiring. But I, my observation of not just my own journey, but many people I've seen is that if you don't know who you are, you kind of lose your voice a bit. You lose, you know, you don't, I feel like our voice, you know, there's a lot of things in culture about finding my voice or using my voice and it not just being how you sound, but something of the living expression of all that's within you, like your, your identity out loud. Okay. So, all right. So this is so Enneagram paralleled and I, so this is why I, and I thought it might be. So I want you to tell me your journey toward, uh, seeing through, you know, the, whatever the we might call the wrapping, the crust that wraps yeah. around us after birth and we come into the world. How have you made the journey through that into your true identity? Oh, well, um, for me, I mean, lots of stops and starts. For me, and, and I guess since we're Enneagram speaking, I know with an eight, there's often they often ask about what are the motivations in your childhood. And, um, and for me, I would say there were some definitive moments, and I talk about it in the book, and one of the, the definitive ones was me leaving foster care. And my foster care, my fostering experience was quite a positive one, actually. But it's inevitable that questions of identity come up um, when you're, I was in foster care for six years. So it wasn't a short, it wasn't like a six months that everyone forgot. It was definitive. Mm. And, um, and then growing up in a, in cultural context, growing up in London as a child during, in a neighborhood where maybe a mile or two away, there are a number of riots in the early 80s, um, race-related riots. And just in terms of what it did for your perception of self and as a child, things you'd see on TV that were too hard to really understand, um, but you kind of made decisions. I, and I remember making decisions, watching the TV, thinking, well, I can't be like that then because this is the way you're going to make it and this is how you're going to be. And so... Um, I, I think for me, my journey was very much trying to work out how was I going to make it in the world? How was I going to survive? I think would, would and, and I, and I didn't, it didn't feel dramatic at the time. It felt um, suitable for the circumstances. Um, how would I survive my family situation or the brokenness of our family? How would I survive in a cultural context that didn't always um, 
celebrate, shall we say, the colour of my skin or my cultural heritage. And um, it feeling very much something I had to fight against from, um, from well, probably from as young as six or seven. Okay, so are what, is what you're saying in part that the answer to the question of, for you, how was I going to make it in the world? Yeah. Is, is part of that answer is I'm going to become an eight. Um, I don't know whether I was, I think I, I think the conscious thing for me was I'm going to fight this. Right. Well, of course it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't yeah. have been a conscious decision. But yeah. you, looking back, you think unconsciously you said, I'm going yeah. to become an eight. Yeah, because every time I've read about the eight and read about the eights in childhood, I'm like, why don't you just read my, my read my diary? Why are you reading my letters? Because I, just that journey and the whole thing about an innocence lost and all of those things were everything. I mean, I could I could name times and places and moments when for me, they were, I was very much a landmark person. I remember sitting on a step and saying, right, this is how it's going to be. Or being in a room and, say, and someone saying something to me saying, right, this is how I'm going to respond. OK, so tell yes. me, give me one. Give me one where it was like an eight thing. Like you're like, OK. I was three. I think I was three or four years old and um, someone had made fun of me and I was upset. And I was still in foster care at this point, And I sat down on the step and I said, I will never trust anybody again. Mm. I said, I'm wow. not going to, people cannot be trusted. Um, that was, I, and I, I, I mean, I even remember what I was wearing. I, it was just, it was that much of a moment. I just thought you can't be trusted. It's not safe. So I won't. Wow. I just won't. That's intense. Uh, Do you have another one? Um, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, I have quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when I, when I returned from foster care, I, and I, it was a complicated scenario because we weren't, when I say we weren't exactly told that we were leaving, we weren't told we were leaving permanently. So I remember when I was in London, back with my mum, and it was this really weird, happy, sad moment because mm. I'm caught between two families at this point and um, thinking you can never really let yourself go because everything is temporary. Nothing is permanent. And I, I was, yeah, so I'd have been about six at that point. I thought nothing is, nothing stays, nothing sticks, nothing stays. So as you've begun to work uh, or understand the Enneagram and I assume do some work with it, how has, <laughs> how has it most benefited you? And, you know, like when you discovered you were innate from that moment forward, like how did this thing begin to help? Um, initially, I've got to be honest, it horrified me initially um, and, and made sense. It was like a collision, actually, and Ian. It was a collision of relief, horror and fear mm. all at the same time and being completely unguarded. Relief because it's like I'm not all those words that I got called. I'm an eight, <laughs> particularly as a woman and, and in leadership and stuff. And, you know, the various cultural tropes that get ascribed to pe types of people. I, um, I, there was a relief, but there was a fear because reading of some of the underbelly and I thought, oh, I can, I can remember that moment when I was particularly unhealthy and functioning as an unhealthy eight or, ah, oh, I know my addictive patterns and the things I'm drawn towards and I know what I'm hiding. And so, it, it, again, it was another one of these, yes, at last, Oh my gosh, someone's reading my mail. Um, maybe this can give me a way forward as well. Maybe mm. I've got language. I've got language and clarity and, and ironically, a sense of not being quite so alone in working out the way I was wired. 
Mm. And what and, and the things that had affected my wiring in many ways. Mm. You know, it, it really did feel like a God moment for me. It was really it was really redemptive, really redemptive. Mm. Just and it started me on quite a redemptive journey when the collision began. <laughs> it was painful collision, but redemptive nonetheless. So when you, you mentioned that I'm, I'm so stuck on this remark you made about, you know, how was I going to make it in the world? Mm-hmm. And it's relationship to identity. And I yeah. would say, you know, personality, you know, there's a is a sort of a maybe a constellation or a suite of be, ways of thinking and feeling and acting that are a response or an answer to that question. Yeah. You, you're right. And how am I going to make it in the world? Well, by thinking, feeling and acting this way. Uh, yeah. And so as an eight, as you look back. How would you say to somebody, this is how I answered the question uh, of how I'm going to make it in the world. Through the, how would you answer that through the lens of the Enneagram as an eight? I think the intensity and the drivenness and the fight. Mm. I think whether I, I didn't, I, I, it was like, I'm going to take charge because you people can't work it out. You can't get your act together. You can't work out who I'm living with or what I'm doing. Clearly, it's time for me to step up. Right. <laughs> and there was, so there was a drivenness and um, and that, yeah, I think the drive and the and the intensity to attack life, but just, I think to take charge and to resist things. I thought be powerless or be powerful. Powerlessness doesn't feel very good. So and and again, initially it wasn't about me controlling anybody else. It was I need some control over these circumstances. Mm. I need to create my own stability here. I need to create my own pathway. No one's going to do it for me. Um, the best I can do is fight back. So I think the I think the kind of taking charge and the leadership thing and exerting some kind of control over the situation around me probably would be the initial things that I would, that come to mind. Mm. So did you do that in service to not revealing uh, weakness and vulnerability to others as well as to yourself? Oh, very much so. I I mean, I I have a, you know, to be honest, I don't know I was as conscious of it in my teens, but in my 20s, my goodness, I think I have a catalogue of friendships of where people would say, where I'd be sat down. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Someone would stage an intervention and complain. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They just complain about how terrible I was about, I mean, other than the too much to all of those, which was just too much for people, but also the never vulnerable. It was like, you're not vulnerable. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, we'd have these conversations. And because even my vulnerability, which was vulnerability to me, sounded so much you know like I'm I went to college at a place and I was surrounded by wonderful friends who had had quite not it's not that they had easy lives but mine was like a mine was a bit random compared to theirs Mm -hmm. so everything sounded dramatic and I didn't and I would say them in off-the-cuff ways because fostering was my normal it wasn't my I mean and they'd want to comfort me and I'm like why are you doing that for don't hug me now that's just really weird I've been back 15 years. <laughs> I mean, there's no point in doing that. Um, so I think there was definitely a a lack of and 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 you know I kept I kept true to the vow I made when I was three. I wouldn't trust anybody. I I kept people at arm's length for a long, long time. And um, and at the moments where they saw a sliver of vulnerability, I would shut it up real quick mm. and erase erase it from all our memories best I could. Um, and it would take a lot for me to open up in any way. Mm. And, and I think, like you said, the vulnerability of myself, I mean, to be honest, I would say even now, 
that that's probably my biggest growth area mm. that's that um that uh, giving myself permission and letting letting myself be is probably my i don't do it naturally do you know what i mean i've worn a very strong groove of externalizing so many things and fighting against things um it's not that I find it hard to admit the vulnerability or talk about it, but I think that it, almost being the silencer with it, being slow it down and be present with it, that's another thing entirely. I hate that, but right. I know it's good for me. Yeah, right. I mean, apes do typically struggle with uh, being self-reflective and mm-hmm. uh, being quiet long enough to be self-reflective. And, and, yeah. and I've had apes tell me that they don't like to spend a lot of time in silence because what emerges for them is uh, some relational regret, you know, that uh, I've hurt Mm. some people, I've run some people over, I've lost some people. Is that true for you? Absolutely. I mean, I I do, I have a retreat on a monthly basis as a discipline because I know it's good for me and good for my body. But I, but, you know, I I have a memory as well, which is really strong. And so I picture things and remember things. And it's like, oh, do I really want to, I said, even if I apologize and all that kind of stuff, I remember who I was and how I am. Um, And, and I can think of the things I've done, you know what I mean? <laughs> and the things I've said and the relationships I've slashed and burned and things. And, and some of the, whilst some of the comments people said were, were an extreme, there was, there wasn't, it wasn't smoke without fire. You know, there were things that where I, I was too much or I was, or the impact. I don't think I was always aware of the impact of my words or the impact of my emotions and the imp- the impact, the weightiness, partly because it wasn't as big a deal to me. Um, but I wasn't, it's like you, you say something, you turn around and someone's flawed and you're like, I, I, I thought you asked for help. <laughs> just something like that. Right. So yeah, yeah. I, and I think those moments of silence bring me, um, on a good day, on a really good day, they bring me to a place of surrender. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's a surrendering of Lord, this is me here I am, you and me. And there's a, there's a surrender in it, but on the fight to that point is unpleasant. You know, it's, it's wearing and it's hard and it's, it's hard because I can't control. Ironically for all the desire to control things and, and have power over things. I'm not that good at doing it with me. (laughs) Oh yeah. You don't, you don't have to explain that problem. (laughs) You know, not to me. I, I, I totally get it. Uh, So one question I love to ask uh, guests from time to time is Mm -hmm. who is your hero? Mm, You know, um, my foster mother is my hero actually. Mm, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, she was a wonderful woman. Her name was um, Emily May Butterfield. Um, she lived to the grand old age of 102. She um, had, she, I suspect, well, you tell me whether you think she was an eight. She was this remarkable, she was just a remarkable woman in every, in so many ways, not just because of what she did for me, but she she decided to be single all her life, partly because she'd, she'd had a broken background and, and an abusive father. And she told, she told me once that when she was on the verge of falling in love with somebody, she ran and jumped off a pier <laughs> to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. And she said, I had a swim, got out, it was done. And that, <laughs> that was it. But she, but she loved children. So she started fostering and she began, I mean, you'll, you'll see when I explain her with her age and everything, she began fostering in World War II. And she, was, she would take the evacuees 
And she, and at the end of the war, she just kept on going. So by the time me and my brother were fostered, we were probably children number 99 and 100. I mean, it was at the end of a fostering process. Mm. And she was just, I think it was the fact that she was so generous and so, and has always been very matter of fact about it, very um, loving, very kind, always learning, always, you know, this is an old white woman in the 70s learning how to braid my Afro hair kind of thing because she wanted to. She would, up until the point, even like in her late 90s, um, because she'd never learned how to read because she'd had a fallout with a teacher at school. So she went and got all her 16 plus English exams and stuff. She won an award in her 90s for being, being England's most inspiring learner. And I think it was that kind of combination of this force of nature and this passion and this service that, um, that, was, that was it for me. I, do you know what I mean? I, I, I just... She was incredible. She asked him. I mean, she was also very ordinary. Like she used to, she used to smoke. Like she used to smoke for England. I mean, it was ridiculous. And she would do these smoke rings, and then she gave it up in her eighties. And I said, "May, why have you given up?" She goes, "It's a terrible habit. It's a filthy habit." I'm like, "Because <laughs> 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 it's disgusting." And I thought you smoked for seventy years, and now you've decided it's a filthy habit. She goes, "Yes, it's disgusting." That, <laughs> so, that is so. Yeah. That is so funny because my mom who is 90 and still smokes a pack of Pall Malls every day. Uh, she gave up smoking in her 80s and just out of the blue. One day she just gave up smoking. And I said, well, well, first of all, I said, have you talked to your doctor? Because that may be the only thing keeping you alive. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, like, oh, wow. Like I said, I, th- I said, I think cancer is just afraid to live in your body. It's just too scared of you. It's just, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then yes. and I said, well, how have you done it? She says, I've been eating five pints of blueberries every day. <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do we account for these sorts of like personality anomalies? It's it's so crazy. Okay, so these are strategies. If you think of if of all of our these different enneagram types, are mm-hmm. some people would say they're a defense against love. And other people would say that, like Thomas Keating, that they're really programs for happiness, that, that, that we think to ourselves, boy, if I uh, armor up, if I um, deny weakness to myself and to others, then really I'm going to, this is going to be my road to happiness. It's going to, mm-hmm. you know, so, but eventually those strategies start to fall apart. They work great yes. in childhood. They don't work great yeah. in adulthood. At what moment did you realize my program for happiness has now ceased to work? I think it would have been, there, there were moments, there were moments. And the, one of the first moments I was 18 um, and I'd left home, I think leaving home um, and thinking I'm going to need a whole other way of, of um, operating here and encounter, and it, this wasn't the first time I'd encountered people like this, but it was the most visible times, C- encountering people who kept their word. Um, like I said, they weren't the first. There have been people throughout my childhood who had, um, but I, I guess being in a new part of the country and new world and all that kind of stuff um, changed a lot for me. And I remember think I think it was, it was a woman who was a mentor and um, she she had, I can't, it's a stupid thing to say, but she had this laugh, Ian, and she had this laugh, which just sounded really good. And, and, um, she had a, a she was just really happy. And then when you heard her story and the train wreck of her history, you're like, this doesn't match. And, um, and I just loved hearing her laugh and loved hearing her freedom and loved the fact that she loved me without condition. 
and I couldn't, it was like she got under the skin before I, before I had a chance of putting my defenses up. And she, and she knew the air I'd grown up in and the part of London I was from. And so she understood a lot of the culture. And I think she could tell I was tired as well. She was like, you know, I get it. Totally been there, totally done that, but it's exhausting, isn't it? And I think for someone on a level um, that who I could resonate with culturally and and um, you know, London's like one of those other big cities where it doesn't think anybody else understands it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, every, there's so many cities like that, aren't there? The big cities. And, and so to be with a fellow Londoner who laughed like that and wasn't as cynical, was savvy, but wasn't cynical, was open, was, was not afraid of vulnerability. Mm. I think that was the other thing. She wasn't afraid of it. And she, it, she wasn't kind of, you know, that I, I had to admit that there was an, a level of me trying to have it together that was completely a fear thing, you know, that was defined by a, I'm going to hit you before you hit me. It was still a, re, it was a reaction kind of thing. And to see someone be free from that was so disorienting and compelling and unnerving all at once, I think was one of the first moments where I thought, I'm going to have to reckon with this at some point. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to have to reckon with with the level of defensiveness and the level of the, 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 the walls. And I think over the years, there were different people who were <laughs> the ones who could bear to stick around, who would, help, who would help with a few bricks here and there. And I think I began to want something different. The more, as I began to do some work about stuff for the past, they didn't seem as useful anymore. You know, mm. there's, there, there was a, still an element of it for me where I was a pragmatist about it and just thought, well, you don't need it. So ooh, this is a waste of time. And um, yeah, I think that that was the beginning of, of, of the journey for me. And, I, and there were probably moments when, again, in my tw- in my 20s, there was just a lot of things coming together and falling apart all at once, coming together in a sense of healing and a sense of me understanding the way I was wired more, but falling apart and recognizing what got me to this point will not get me any further. Mm. And I'm going to have to make some choices about this. You know, I'm going to have to work out. Do you really want to not trust anybody anymore? Do you really want to? Is that, is that how you want to live? And do you really want to be afraid and call it whatever you call it, but actually you're still afraid? <laughs> um, you know, do you, do you want to try so hard? Do you want to exhaust all this energy on, on hiding? And, and would you like to you know, is, is, there a, is there something good that can come out of this? I think they were questions that were in my mind and swirling around me when I let myself, when I wasn't working too hard, um, <laughs> when I wasn't overworking. Those were the things that were in my heart, mm. for sure. So how do you know, going back to the book, uh, yeah. about broken identities? Um, and I would, by the way, I, I would love to talk to you about this because I'm working on a project right now where I'm sort of really interested in this idea that, you know, human beings actually the you know we we inherit or we construct narratives or stories as young biddies you know yes to to help us understand ourselves and the way the world is and when you get older and someone asks you the question if you're lucky they ask you this question and you pay attention which is Mm -hmm. how do you know the story you've been telling about yourself uh is true oh gosh Right. And I, yeah, I, I think yeah. about I think about how uh, for an eight, you know, or for me as a four, it was like such a, a, a revelatory question, which is like, how do you know that story's true that you're 
you know, for example, this is a really hostile world. There's nobody trustworthy. You know, mm. it's like, have you mm -hmm. ever inter interrogated the assumption that that, you know, is, is that true? And and then when you yeah. when you begin to do that, then you can start to bust through. I think some of these uh, sort of cultural or or whatever, wherever you picked up these broken identities. Yeah, you can begin to say, oh well, m maybe that's not the final word. Yes. Yeah. Right. So absolutely. I want to know if you were because you're going to be doing. I'm sure you've done it already. You're a dynamic speaker. We share the same speaking agent, Jim Chafee, who we both. Yay! We both love, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm a 23-year-old woman. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, I am. I'm a 23-year-old woman, and I come to you and I say, I really want to find my God-given identity, but I've been through a lot of stuff. I'm just not sure how. Can you tell me? Yeah. Whew. I think what I would say... I think the first thing, honestly, and maybe this is just me, I think I would say... You know, it's great that you want to know, first of all. I think I think for you, someone to get to that point, it's quite a brave choice. It, I, I, for me, and maybe this is more for me, for me to get to that moment, there was such a degree of vulnerability that I want to catch the moment that person's vulnerability and, and affirm it in that first moment. Um, because I think that encourages you to take the next step. And then I, I would say it's a journey um, and say, well, why don't we first start peeling things off? Because I think it's very easy to swap one thing for another. Do you know what I mean? Oh, one yeah. cultural, one cultural should for another cultural ought. And I think I did. I did a lot of that of thinking. Okay, well I can't be that. Well I'll be this then. You know, I got into you know, in my parts of my twenties, and there were churches and environments I was in that were very much kind of a woman's meant to be like this. And I thought, well, I don't want to be that broken teenager I used to be. So why didn't I become this person? I dressed a particular way and it was a terrible look on me. But anyway, I was trying really hard and I, <laughs> and I tried really hard. And, and so I, rather than me try and say, this is what you've got to be instead, because I think it's tempting to, I just want to get rid of the old thing and get on, get on with the new to say, okay, let's peel them off one by one. And, and say, what were the things that I, I asked people, what are the things that have named them? Um, when did you lose your voice? I probably start with questions, really. Um, I'd ask, I'd ask them about the community because I think I think there is an identity which we have, which is an individual, but I, we we are a we as well. And maybe this is partly my African heritage and everything as well. But there there was an a, there's been huge affirmations of how I'm wired when I've been around my people. Um, and so I'd ask you who your, who your people are. There, there's an, a huge thing that always happens every time I'm in London, every time there's a visceral thing that happens. And anytime I'm around Nigerians, that just, and may, that just resonates in a particular way. And so I'd, I'd ask her the things that hurt her. I'd ask her the things that, the words that linger, um, that sting. Um, I'd ask, and I'd ask her, you know, <laughs> and this will be really stupid. I don't know if it's stupid or not. I'd ask her what she before it got complicated, if she can remember what she thought, you know, before it got complicated for me, I was really into Wonder Woman, really oh. into Wonder Woman. I loved her. Oh my gosh. Ian, I got these boots. My Aunt May, my foster mum bought me these boots, red boots. I tell you, I couldn't have loved anybody more that day. It was, oh. it, and uh, because I didn't want to be a princess. I wanted to get things done and Wonder Woman got stuff done. And of, you know, and, and of course, that is an eight thing, right? The eights are part of those that doer group, right? Yeah. They, they just do first. They're, they're, you know, these are people yeah. who live from the gut. They're instinctual people. They're doers. Uh, they, Absolutely. They, they, they do before they think or feel. That's for sure. Absolutely. And so I'd ask them things like that. I'd ask, 
I'd kind of try and see if we could trace some innocence again before mm. it got interrupted. Um, those, those were, I think the people, the places which helped me lay things down probably did that for me most. They listened a lot. They asked me questions. They listened a lot and they let me hear my own voice. Mm. Um, they let me hear my own voice and let me hear myself again, um, which, was, which was important for me. It was important for me to reintegrate how I'd been right. wired again. Yeah. So they I, let me hear me loud even as well. Yeah, they let know, me be loud. I, I love, by the way, you know, some eights, uh, the intensity it has a slightly menacing edge to it, you know, and then we could, we could jump <laughs> yeah. into subtypes, right? If we wanted to, yeah. but, and our, by the way, are you a social eight? I think so. Yeah. So, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, I think part of that is I, I can, you know, pick up on that, your loyalty, that, 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 mm. um, you know, you're more, you're probably n more nurturing and protective, Yes. Uh, that it gets. Do people ever say to you, "I don't think you're an eight. I think you're a really strong two, or you know, that you're too nurturing to be an eight? Has anyone ever said that to you? Not often, but <laughs> 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 but they are. Some, but people do say I'm more nurturing than they that they. The nurturing word has come up from time to time. The N word, the nurturing word, has come up um, in a sense of a um, people being surprised. <laughs> People being surprised that I'm nurturing. So yes. <laughs> People are surprised when I put my arm around them or I touch their shoulder or if I puddle. Oh, that would freak them out completely. That would just mess with their heads because I don't hug very often. So so um, they, they'd be like, oh gosh. They'd probably think I was ill if I did that. But they are surprised that, um, like one of my friends says, you know, you, she goes, you are more pastoral. She kind of whispers it like it's a secret. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a question that I love when, when people come to me with a similar question mm -hmm. uh, for spiritual direction, maybe I've used the Enneagram with them and uh, to help them. Because, I, you know, as you know, there are many ways to start to bust the crust, right? On the yeah. outside of who we are. And I, I think the, uh, <laughs> right. I just, I didn't mean to say that, but I'm going to use it again. Uh, Please but, do. but the way that we can, you know, get back to our, our, the, our most authentic selves uh, and one of the questions I love to ask people is, what has always been true of you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a fascinating one. That's a fascinating one because I think I have asked, I, I found I've had to couch that with some people in different ways because they haven't always recognized it, mm. you know? So sometimes I've asked a similar thing by saying, what are the consistent compliments you've had? <laughs> because yeah. they wouldn't hear it directly. Do you, know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Particularly with women who are leaders. I've had to say, um, because they haven't, they wouldn't necessarily own the leadership thing as naturally mm. um, because it's been kind of, I don't know, misogynied out of them or, or right. something or beaten out of them one way or another. And so I've had to say, what have other people always said about you? I said, you know, like not the weird ones, but the friends who you kind of trust mm. or what were the responsibilities that you all, what always ended up happening in your direction as a way of finally saying, do you think they saw something that you weren't quite able, you know, before it got weird and bad, do you think that was always a sign that, <laughs> I mean, the light flashing in the dark along the way kind mm. of thing. But, um, what but you, I love that. What's, what's always been true of you is, is a good one. What, what, what do you mean by weird and bad before things got weird and bad? What does that mean? Um, I think in that case, it would often be, um, it would be, oh, okay, I'll give you an example. When I first started leading, 
um, I remember having a very well-meaning friend um, tell me that a woman shouldn't and that there was something therefore fundamentally wrong with me because I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and the weirdness of it being these are people who, this is your friend, you do life with, you hang with, um, bad in that you can't, you can't get away from the weirdness of a comment that took all your courage to try and do and now you're wrong for being you kind of kind of thing and um and particularly with that sense of for me being involved in leadership makes me feel alive and so this moment this life-giving fun weirdly return to innocence (laughs) return to something which feels pure and wonderful and god-given and then like nah don't do it don't do it because there's something really weird about women who do that and it must mean you are xyz those would be the examples of weird and bad. And um, I mean, it, for the women I've worked with and coached and stuff, it's come out in different ways. Some have had far more explicit things saying, you should be this, or you are betraying your family, or you are a bad example of a woman, or you are going against God. I mean, when God's invoked, it gets real trippy, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> you know, because oh, oh. in, in those moments, no one's saying, this is my theological view, there are others. They're just saying, this is how it is. Um, and, and those sorts of things. I mean, I've, I've women who have been told, you know, you don't apply for the promotion. You're here to be eye candy. And, and literally said that. And, and then having to, the emotional collateral damage of those sorts of things when you kind of pack up your bags and go in and internalize everything. Mm. And somehow it's easier to believe there must be something wrong with you than with that, per, with that conversation because there's way more evidence of what they're saying than what you feel. Mm. So this book is targeting, is your target audience for this women? I mean, is that the, the target audience for you? You know, I, when, I, when I wrote it, I thought of women partly because it, I, I thought of women because they were the people who I was encountering most having these conversations with. But also, but one of my friends, one of the guys I worked with in 3DM said, you know, Joe, to be honest, he said, I think everybody needs to read it. He said, you know, we've been getting you to read books which are, revolve around us for years. Um, <laughs> he said, so just write, write what you want to write. And then we just, we just read it <laughs> kind right. of thing. Um, so, so yeah, so I, it's many, many women's stories and predominantly women's stories. And so, yes, it, I, I, they have been my primary focus, but all guys are welcome. <laughs> Is the journey the same? Do you think? I mean, I'm, obviously you're not a man, so I, you can't with, with, you know, ultimate authority answer that question, but do you think the journey, uh, to moving past broken identity past the limitations of your Enneagram type is the journey essentially the same for men as it is for women? I'd be surprised if it was. Um, Just in even talking with the women I spoke to along the way, the differences concerning your ethnic background, your cultural context, your economic group, um, added different kinds of nuances because there were certain things that were affirmed and certain things that were ignored, certain things which were particularly of value in certain contexts, certain ones that uh, that weren't. So I'd be surprised if it was the same, I think. But I would say journey, definitely. Mm -hmm. And... And there, there may be areas which, which socially, culturally, um, people are more comfortable with women admitting or owning that might be that I would guess might be more difficult for a guy mm-hmm. or not as culturally accepted mm-hmm. for someone to to um, embrace that. So, so I, I would say there there are the journey. There's what's in common is there's a journey with its own nuances and twists and turns, and probably the feeling of disorientation. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. probably that sense of I'm going to have to come up against cultural oughts and shoulds here. I'm going to have to face 
what I've minimized mm. here. That so that the principles probably similar, but but the context I, I'm sure would add a, a different dimension. I completely agree. But do you? I guess what the question I have because I think I mean I have an opinion on it. But mm. if I were to sit with a man, mm-hmm. would I not ask the same questions to help them arrive at this uh, new awareness? of who they are beyond their personality and their identity to ask questions like what's always been true of you or yeah. what where where did you lose or find your voice uh that's just where i was coming from it's like is this a universal journey toward yeah, authenticity yeah. i no 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 thanks for the the clarity i would ask those questions yes i would ask those questions um and i would and maybe we'd let, we'd land on one for longer than another. Maybe we'd stay with one, for, but definitely, absolutely, because I think we we all have to make it. I do. I think we. I think the the world has happened to us all. Life has happened to us all. People have happened to us all. And for as, as and as much as we have all of that in common, then I think there are questions we have to ask. Okay. Sure. All right. What's the journey like for a black Nigerian woman uh, toward true self and through understanding <laughs> broken identity? Um, it was, is, has been, continues to be, um, vulnerable and vigorous. Um, it has been painful at times. Oh my gosh. Agonizingly painful. Um, unexpected blessings, unexpected, wonderful things, Uh um, as well. I think, and I think for me that it's been also non-linear, not like a, and you rise like this. It's been a kind of squiggly line, Mm -hmm. um, and and so for for me, my first encounter with grief did all kinds of stuff for what I understood about identity, um, and that was way in. And so on one level, it was kind of like, oh, I I had this journey in my twenties, but then my thirties went here, there, and everywhere. And and um, yeah, it's I'm glad it's a journey. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad there's no arriving. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm glad it. I'm glad, and I think it has brought me and continues to bring me to a place of it's humbling. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's humbling because I'm more confident than I was when I was younger. I'm, I'm more, I'm more content with being, I was going to say more content. I thought, don't say that. Um, that's a lie. Um, I'm more, I'm more content with being vulnerable and holding it, but it, there's, but I'm, my eyes are being opened yet again to certain things which are really uncomfortable, you know, that, mm. so what you feel about your body as a teenager is one thing. And then what you feel about it in your 20s and then your 30s and then your 40s and your ever-changing body and your limitations, it's just a really fragile thing. Mm. And uh, and in some ways, it feels like I'm going back over ground again. And in other ways, it feels like it's the layers of an onion being peeled off again. So um, it's liberating, but um, liberty isn't cheap. No. You know? No, it sure that's isn't. The, that's the thing. The road, that, the road of self-awareness and that isn't a cheap one. And it's not necessarily a quick one. And it's not always an easy one. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It's a worthwhile one, though. I wouldn't change it. How is it like, what is it like for you as an eight in the current political and social environment in which we find ourselves? Like how, I know how I feel as a four, mm. and I don't mind telling you some other point, but what's it like for you to be swimming in the waters of American political and social culture right now? How does it affect you? You know, there's that thing that you say about eights and rage, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it has been, I mean, I, I just, 
I, me and my friend my, who I do the podcast with, we're both eights and we were talking about something and we said, do you remember back when? And we realized, no, it's just been the longest year of our lives. Do you know what yes. I mean? It feels like a really, really long, slow train wreck. Um, and so I feel I've had to really take care of my body. Ah, okay. You know? Yeah. I've had to pay attention to my body because I feel it burning within me. I, Charlottesville. I mean, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, Ian. I was in England at the time. Um, my brother got my brother got married, so we were away. And I felt my blood rise because I thought I knew, as I knew, as I knew, this is exactly what was going to happen. Mm. And all the playing it down and all the pretending it wasn't going to be and maybe it'll be all right, I knew this was going to happen. All the stuff with in, in our current climate about Me Too and the sexual assault and women and knew it was going to happen. Mm. Knew, knew, knew. And, and so there's this frustration of, you could have listened <laughs> to the voices on the margins for a long time. Um, there is a, a protectiveness, particularly with my kids. Um, I remember I was talking to you not long after the last election when I, when I was broke down about it because I thought, how do you prepare? There's something really painful. And it, I mean, it breaks me still, not just for my kids, but for my friends' kids and, and kids generally. There's something really painful about preparing your kids to be adult in a broken world, you know what I mean? When they're kids, mm -hmm. that there's, and I think with this as an eight, and you know the whole, you know, me just sitting on a step when I was three, and I see my kids, and I'm trying to keep them off sitting off their steps, you know, mm. of who they won't trust again, or what they, what I see, what they, what they won't internalize about the, their skin tone, mm. what they won't uh, internalize about them being young women, and um, and the fight to protect and then what, what how do you protect kids how do you protect anybody in, in this do you do you prevent it from happening do you fight against it do you tool them for it and it's a really conflicting time mm. and it's um it's just really hard i find it really hard because there's so much i want to say but because it's so like there are moments where i where i'm like i just need to block people from social media i just need to unfriend and walk away because i'm not i see some of my friends are really eloquent and articulate i would just be expletives Mm. I would just, I, it's just, it's that sheer pain of it all. Mm. I have nothing constructive to say. And it's not that I want to be silent to be complicit with junk. It's that I, I can't drop F-bombs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that. And, 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 and also there's part of me which wants to come back and say, okay, God, if this is the world we're in, show me the fight and I'm in. Show me how to fight this one. Okay. And so that's, that's the other part of it. It's the, how do I, in the pain of it all and the frustration and the confusion of it all, it's how do I make sure I don't burn myself out or eat myself out or drink myself? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> whatever the out, whatever the thing that would take me out, the out, make sure I don't out do that. And then, um, and then saying, okay, what's the fight? And if there's a lot, one thing I did learn as a kid, um, when I was growing up in, in London and in, in the environment I was, I learned, I, I learned enforced patience. You know, mm. I, I'm not a patient person naturally. Right, I get but it. I, yep. Eights would you know not I mean? be fall in the category of patient. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I learned how to, maybe it was a seething impatience or something, but I, I learned how, I learned the long game. I learned to tolerate certain things or not freak out too much about that thing or not deal with that thing and, and be disciplined about certain things for the sake of where I was going. Right. Um, and where I was determined to go. And, I, and you know, like you can fight like a scrap. You can do scrap fighting and slap and kick and that, or you can just work, work out how to use a weapon later. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so um, I think that's the other mode, which 
I don't know if it's it's more. I know it's more productive than the rage I feel, but it, there's a pulling back and saying, okay, this is the world we're in. We could be in it for some time. Um, God, how do I stay healthy, whole? How do we as a family stay healthy and whole? How do I, what's the way forward that drives through this madness hmm. culturally and everything and, and brings a better day? Okay. What because is, that's ultimately what, is God, what I just want. Just out of curiosity, maybe just a, a quick summary. What, what, what has God said? <laughs> so far, <laughs> so far he said, get your tears out, kid. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. think some of it has, has been, it's okay to cry and it's okay to feel the helplessness. Um, and um, he's, he's made me stay in it. And, and, and then, then it's been, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Mm. Okay. So, like, so Joe, what sorry, do you want to do? Um, whew, I think, I mean, I'm st- to be honest, I'm still asking that question. I, I'm still trying to work it out myself. I think there are a couple of things that are clear. Um, I love developing women who lead. And I think for me this year, um, one of the one of the things in terms of I, I kind of I was talking to a friend about this and I said the bookends of the year as far as gender has been concerned has been the Women's March at the beginning of the year and Me Too at the end mm. and everything in between and thinking what would it look like to help people let go of the broken identities yes but also the second part of it live what they were made for what would it look like if women were equipped and empowered to walk the corridors of power and change it because their absence isn't helping. Do you know what I mean? Right. What is, it's not. It's um. It's not good. And so it's it's made it made me more determined to look for ways to train up leaders in tangible ways and to develop some initiatives that are working and building that. So that's one of the things. I you know it's interesting. In at this, I'm thinking a lot about kids who age out of foster care. Um, just because I, and, and maybe as. I am processing lots of things of my childhood and I, I process different things as my kids hit certain milestones. Mm-hmm. And I think of um, the dislike, just how disoriented I would feel. Do you know what I mean? And how easy, how unhelpfully easy it can be to end friendships and end relationships because, you know, everything's temporary and you don't trust people. And, and I was at an event a few weeks ago and somebody said, they, I didn't know this, but there were some w- young women who were aging out of foster care who were in the audience and the, the person who brought them along said, they said, they said to tell you that you're their role model for someone who's worked this out well. Mm. And, and I, it was just, I mean, humbling and breaking and redeeming and everything at the same time. And so I've only just begun to think that through, you know, in terms of what, you know, if I have, or since I have opportunities and abilities and access to things, what, what, how do I pour it in to, to parts of the world that are easily forgotten so that for, for the greater good. And I inevitably, I think of kids who are in foster care when that happens, when I think of those, mm. those things. Well, Joe, I, I have such a terrific admiration for you and, and a growing oh, affection. You. I mean, it, we can be honest with, the, with our audience that we've never actually, you know, really spent a lot of time hanging out. But, no. but whenever mm-hmm. I do hang out with you, it's really fun. And I, 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 I think part of it is that um, you you have this is what the, the Jesuits I think have too that that makes them rather attractive to me is that you you have a sense of the hilarious, <laughs> and, and and that's slightly different than funny or char- you know the hilarity of mm. of what we're part of, but as well as the pathos and the seriousness, the gravity of what we're part mm. of, but also approaching it with a certain amount of irony and hilarity because you know. 
you're, we're just not going to make it unless we we can yeah. do we can do that. And I I I just really appreciated that about you. So thank you. One of the things we try to do at, at the end of every show is give uh, uh, the folks who are listening, uh, who are eights in this situation, sort of tips for beginning to do their work. Capital mm-hmm. W. Um, like, can you give uh, a couple of tips to our eight listeners? Uh, and you might even, if you wanted to, tell them, uh, tell our people out there who love eights what they could do to help eights. But just some tips for how they could begin to grow into their, uh, beyond their broken identity or their broken personality into their best self. Yeah. Um, for those who would say that they are um, Bible readers and Bible um, and that they found the Bible to be a part of integral part of their lives. For me, Psalm 139 has been a wonderful gift. Mm. And it's a gift because, I mean, on one level, it looks real romantic, but David, who it's attributed to, is is a crazy man. I mean, you know, he's been a shepherd and a warrior and he's got blood on his hands. He's a really complex person. Mm-hmm. And he strikes me as a really intense character. And I love there's this tenderness about the psalm, about God, you search me and you know me and all these sorts of things and the sense of being known. And then, but for me, I've, I've taken in the mirror and stood in, the, in front of the mirror and I've said, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And that has been a healing balm in accepting and embracing how I'm wired. Mm. You know, and being able to say, and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't able to say it at first. I tell you, I'd be like, nope, nope. I'm just going to pretend that's not in the Bible. But, um, but I would, I stand, I, I stand in front of a mirror and say, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and that I'm not an accident. I'm not a, I'm not a, a concession <laughs> or oh, something. Oh wow, wow, that's a, that's I mean? an amazing word right there. And you know, because sometimes it's almost like, oh well. There are strong, there are strong men around, and oh, oh, awkward, strong woman. Oh well, well, let it be. Mm. She, the one, the one that got away, and it's like, no, the one that he fearfully and wonderfully made, actually. Mm. Um, that's been an important part of, for, 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 as a reminder. I would encourage therapy where you need it. I mean, I'm a, I love it. I love. Um, I, I've, and as an extrovert, I've appreciated being able to engage with someone in conversation. Um, I would say give your therapist a chance. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, listen, I'm, I'm a therapist. I, I know when an eight walks in the room, it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. yeah, I'd say give them a chance, and um, this is you. Um, and may you may go in with your normal weapons. Um, sometimes it helps to put your weapons down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would say for those of you who love eights. Um, God bless you. <laughs> 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 um, um, they are, I would say, you know, I would say they are more, the, there are tender places and, um, but they will spot it if you're trying to find them. If you see, if you try to, if you try and outsmart them to find the place where they're really vulnerable, um, they'll fight you. Mm. If you simply acknowledge it, um, and when I say simply, I mean without fanfare. I don't, I'm not saying it's easy. Um, they're, they're, you may be more likely to respond to it. Um, and if you if you present it as a question with them to, with some, for something to think about, rather than um, that might help as well. Mm. Um, I would say to the eights as well. Now this is odd, but I like I have I have a few songs. I think a soundtrack is a good thing. Yeah. 
I have a sound. I have soundtracks. And I have quotes um, that I love. I'm a words person, so I so get your soundtrack for the days when you need them. My on my <laughs> there have been moments when um, there's a song. Uh, well, it's, it's hip hop by um, which is no surprise really um, by DJ Khaled, where, and it goes. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. That has been my soundtrack for the past three years. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I hear it. it, it, it I don't. I, I hear it just all the time, and it, and in some ways, it's kind of. I mean, it's self-referential, but it's just funny. I it, it helps me not take myself too seriously mm-hmm. on on one level. Um, but it, it almost. Set, I, I I've learned to enjoy the intensity, celebrate this intensity, but not take it too seriously all at the same time. Right. Um. And I think that's good for our health. Um. I would. I, and I would say, I don't know that we're, my observation of us eights is that we're not always kind to our bodies. This is something that I'm really learning, how unkind I've been to my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often find at the end of the year that catches up with me. Um, it's not that I don't take days off. There are other things. There's a, uh, which is one of the ironies when people call me nurturing, because I don't know that I've done that with myself as well as I could, could have done. And um, I, I've pushed my body. I've exacted my body. I have challenged my body and all of these things but i i would encourage us to just pay attention to what our bodies are saying mm, yes because oftentimes with part of that too too much thing is that that aids will push their bodies the, to the the brink they don't even know yeah. they're doing it yeah uh, absolutely until they you know come down with some illness or they yeah whatever they strain themselves to the point of of you know damaging their bodies well those are all wonderful transformational tips and i i I know that our folks will be terribly grateful tell folks how they can find out about you joe oh well um on the social social media um pretty much everything is at joe saxton Mm -hmm. um my website is joesaxton.com. The podcast is called Lead Stories. So yeah, any of those, just at Joe Saxton, and we will meet each other again, one way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to, I want to encourage people again to go, please, 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 because I'm going to go read it. I, I don't care who it's, the target audience is, but everyone, yes. everyone go and pre-order The Dream of You. Let go of broken identities and live the life you were made for. You can buy it. I tell you right now, go buy it for people for Christmas and tell them it's coming in a couple yes. of weeks hence. You know, uh, Just give them a little piece of paper saying this is coming in the mail, okay? But really, I, I'm so excited about it. I'm really so excited, Joe, to continue the conversation with you about about broken identities and you know the language of the Enneagram as a way yeah. of speaking about broken identities and as a tool mm-hmm. for kind of breaking through the junk that we accumulate and that confuse us from seeing who we truly are. And yeah. uh, so again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're the best. And I want to remind all of you until next time, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Until next time, people, adios. Adios.